Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Hello, and welcome to our viewers. My name is Bernice Xu, and I'm a program assistant at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. The topic of today's interview is China's recent military and nuclear buildup. In this conversation, we will address why China is rapidly expanding its nuclear arsenal, what this spells for U.S.-China relations, and the implications for global strategic stability and arms control. Joining me today are two leading experts in this area. First, we have Dr. Taylor Fravel, who is the Arthur and Ruth Sloan Professor of Political Science and the Director of the Security Studies Program at MIT. His expertise includes international security, China, and East Asia. We are proud to say that Taylor is also a fellow in the National Committee's Public Intellectuals Program. He is joined by Dr. Tung Zhao, Senior Fellow in the Nuclear Policy Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace based in Beijing. Tung's research focuses on strategic security issues such as China's nuclear policy policy, or nuclear weapons policy, and foreign policy. Taylor and Tung, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Let's jump right into it. There are growing concerns that Beijing is rapidly expanding its military and nuclear capabilities. From building hypersonic missiles and building nuclear silos to the Pentagon's annual report released in November 2021, which estimates that China could possess well over a thousand nuclear warheads by 2030. We would like to explore why China is building up its nuclear arsenal and why now. So the first question is to Tong. What are some of the domestic drivers that are contributing to China's accelerated military modernization? I think uh, under uh, China's current paramount leader, President Xi, there is a growing belief uh, that um, you know, if China wants to achieve its uh, goal of national rejuvenation, uh, China has to have a powerful military. And that includes a powerful uh, military, uh, a powerful nuclear uh, capability. And that is written into the recent historical resolution passed at the uh, Sixth Party uh, Plenum of the uh, 19th Party Congress, which says that for China to become a, a powerful nation, it has to have a powerful military. Um, so I think people increasingly associated um, China's uh, achievement of uh, national rejuvenation with uh, the necessity of developing a world-class military. Um, and uh, President Xi himself appears to have attached uh, greater significance uh, to China's nuclear uh, capacity than his predecessors. Right? He upgraded uh, the Chinese missile forces uh, from a military branch to a full military service. He inspected uh, the military and nuclear bases multiple times and made specific and unprecedented explicit instructions about the need to massively develop Chinese uh, nuclear capabilities. And as recent as March this year, he again uh, made a very clear instruction for the military to accelerate the development of high level uh, strategic uh, deterrent uh, systems. And he is also the, uh, the paramount leader that uh, more explicitly said that um, the China's missile forces 
are a key pillar of China's international status, which means he seems to believe that uh, a greater nuclear power would, uh, you know, do a great job in enhancing China's overall international status. He seems to believe that a greater nuclear force could provide China with greater political and geopolitical leverage and make Western countries better respect China. Um, I think all those uh, new thinking uh, may have played a very important role in driving China's growing investment into its nuclear capabilities. Great, thank you. Um, so Taylor, to what extent is China reacting to enhancements in US military capabilities and President Biden's re-emphasis on a multilateral approach to dealing with China, such as reinvigorating the Quad and signing the AUKUS deal? And also, are there other countries in the region that are influencing Beijing's military strategy? Sure, so um, I guess let me take each of those in turn. And thanks so much uh, for having me, uh, Bernice, into the National Committee. So first, I think at the, in terms of both nuclear and conventional modernization, China is clearly uh, reacting uh, to the United States uh, and has been uh, at least since uh, 1999, uh, which is really when uh, the modernization and recapitalization of uh, the People's Liberation Army began in earnest. Uh, this is after uh, the accidental bombing of the Chinese embassy uh, during the air war uh, over Kosovo. And so we've now seen two decades of investments in, air, in the Air Forces, the Naval Forces, the Ground Forces, and uh, as Tom mentioned, in the Nuclear Forces. And perhaps some of the investments in the Nuclear Forces are slightly delayed um, relative to the conventional forces, but we're now seeing uh, those uh, come online. And I think specifically, uh, China's uh, focused on seeking to uh, prevail in any conflict that might occur within East Asia and assesses that in some, of, in some of the most likely scenarios, Taiwan in particular, the United States would need would become involved and China would need to be able uh, to deal with uh, US uh, intervention. At the nuclear, or in terms of nuclear modernization in particular, there's been a huge, historically a huge disparity between the size of China's nuclear force and the size of the US nuclear force. And uh, even though China has been steadily modernizing its forces uh, since sort of the late uh, 1990s, um, as you noted in the intro, right, we're now seeing a step function increase in the pace of that modernization. But up to this point, I would say China's had longstanding concerns about the viability of its nuclear deterrent uh, against or vis-a-vis -vis the United States and its ability uh, to resist US nuclear coercion. This is symbolized, I think, most explicitly in terms of Chinese concerns about uh, US missile defenses, which are often assessed in China as being able to uh, negate or degrade uh, China's deterrent capability, especially if the US were to conduct a first strike against uh, China. And so I think it's safe to say that uh, sort of the prime mover in China's um, in China's nuclear modernization is uh, the United States, along with the very important points that Zhao made. In other words, there are multiple drivers here, uh, but, the, but the US capabilities are one important driver. I think status and this idea of becoming a world-class military national rejuvenation are also very important. And so I wouldn't want to highlight what I just said over uh, what Tong uh, has just said. Um, this, I guess, brings me to your second question regarding sort of uh, recent multilateral initiatives uh, with the Biden administration uh, seeking to improve ties with allies, uh, sort of revitalizing the Quad on the one hand with India, uh, uh, Australia and Japan, and then uh, this new AUKUS deal, which is a, a trilateral agreement with the United Kingdom and Australia, 
premised on uh, helping Australia develop a nuclear attack submarine, but will also include a much more wide-ranging cooperation. These events are quite recent. Um, they've occurred within the last six months. And I don't think um, principally, and I don't think China's uh, sort of nuclear modernization uh, that we're here to discuss today is really a reaction to those events, right? I, I think it's a that they are symbols of the growing competition uh, between the two countries and the way in which the United States is uh, seeking to respond. But if we look at the timeline for when China, I think, began to invest uh, more in building up its uh, certainly ground-based uh, silo uh, capabilities, this seems to start in earnest in around 2018. Uh, with the construction of silos at a, at a test facility. And then of course, in March of 2020 with uh, the first silo field being constructed and then in about a year later with the second silo field. And these seem to track more closely with uh, the nuclear posture review uh, that was issued by the previous administration, which seemed to lower the threshold for the use of nuclear weapons by the United States, which seemed to emphasize the role of or increase the emphasis on the role of nuclear weapons for the United States and focus on sort of low yield nuclear weapons. And so I think those events are probably more likely proximate uh, sort of factors that were um, playing a role in China's uh, decision to expand its force than what's happened uh, most recently. Now, finally, in terms of countries on the periphery, um, I think there are probably consequences and implications for uh, China's uh, nuclear modernization for all of China's neighbors, and in particular, Japan and India. Uh, but I don't think that uh, the nuclear uh, sorry, or, or, or the military modernization um, programs in those countries where their military strategies are, are playing a decisive role in China. I do think here the, the United States is the most important factor. Thanks. Great. Thank you, Taylor. Um, so now I want to turn a bit to discuss the implications for U.S.-China relations more broadly. So Tong, could you please briefly explain the no first use pledge and what it has meant in the U.S.-China context? Well, China's uh, no first use policy basically uh, pledges that uh, under no conditions uh, would China be the first country to use uh, nuclear weapons. Um, you know, it has been uh, China's uh, a very important uh, component of China's nuclear strategy uh, from uh, the very beginning uh, of China's nuclear uh, program. Uh, it has uh, been a foundation pillar of China's nuclear doctrine. Um, and I think, you know, uh, even though there are some, even though China really uh, thinks that uh, it's no first year's pledge uh, is ironclad, uh, it is uh, very uh, uh, firm and unambiguous, uh, uh, but uh, I think uh, international experts have uh, looked into some uh, internal uh, documents um, written by authoritative Chinese military uh, officials and experts, and they found that when it comes to uh, uh, you know a serious conventional conflict, uh, the Chinese uh, missile forces they have specific doctrines to lower nuclear threshold, and they would consider uh, threaten the use of nuclear weapons uh, under certain conditions. Uh, for example, if some uh, strategic targets of China are threatened, uh, China might threaten the use of nuclear weapons in a conventional war. 
but the uh, these uh, internal writings uh, does not uh, do not say whether China would follow through the threat to actually uh, employ nuclear weapons. Uh, so that ambiguity creates different interpretations about the credibility of China's no force use. Some would argue, uh, you know, simply by uh, threatening the use of nuclear weapons in the conventional war would contradict the spirit of no force use because China's enemy uh, wouldn't be able to tell whether a nuclear threat is genuine or just a bluff. Uh, but others would argue, well, uh, China only intends to bluff um, and, uh, and so it doesn't really uh, violate uh, any commitment. Uh, I think that um, debate about the credibility of no first use uh, has really undermined the reassuring uh, effect of China's no first use policy. And in recent years, as Chinese uh, capabilities uh, increase, uh, I think there is greater concern in the United States that uh, new nuclear capabilities uh, are enabling China to contemplate more offensive uh, nuclear uh, postures, including potential first use of nuclear weapons in a regional contact. And indeed, uh, China's uh, regional nuclear forces are becoming more accurate. Uh, and uh, you know, at least in theory, it offers China the option of threatening uh, first use. Uh, and um, given the deteriorating US-China relations, uh, there are always some internal uh, debates about whether China should stick to no first use. Uh, recently, uh, former um, uh, senior diplomat Sha Zukang, uh, uh, former ambassador and former director general of uh, China's arms control department of the MFA, openly said uh, that China should modify its no first use. Uh, but I think in general, given despite these different internal voices, I think there is a general consensus in Chinese policy community that uh, no first use has served China well. It has uh, provided China a moral high ground. It, uh, China has no visible military incentive to, uh, to use nuclear weapons first in future military scenarios, given the increasing Chinese conventional military advantage in the region. Uh, so I would, um, I, would uh, uh, I think, uh, argue that um, I don't think China would um, uh, explicitly abandon no first use, even though uh, given the perceived uh, threats from the United States and the growing US capacity to use conventional weapons to undermine China's nuclear uh, uh, survivability, uh, China might maintain a significant degree of ambiguity about under what conditions uh, would China um, threaten or not threaten nuclear use. And following up on that, does the United States have a similar no first use pledge? The US uh, has never adopted uh, a no first use policy. Uh, in recent years, um, there are some internal debates uh, in the beltway about whether US should move toward uh, no first use. President Biden uh, has long embraced the idea that uh, maybe US should adopt sole purpose uh, or uh, seek the eventual adoption of no first use in order to lower the role of nuclear weapons in American uh, security policy. Um, I think that's uh, certainly a welcome development uh, by China, but there are still 
so much different voices and uh, the internal debate is very intense. There is no guarantee that uh, President Biden's personal preference of no first use or sole purpose would be reflected uh, uh, and established as official US policy. Uh, we will know better after the US um, finishes its nuclear posture review in, uh, in, uh, in one or a couple of months time. Great, thank you. Um, so turning back to Taylor, earlier you mentioned Taiwan. Could you unpack a bit how China's nuclear buildup is impacting Washington's calculus on Taiwan? Sure, I think, um, you know, if the buildup as projected is completed such that there are more than a thousand um, sort of Chinese or nuclear warheads by you know, 2030, right, it would significantly shift a U.S. Uh, assessments of uh, the role of nuclear weapons uh, in a Taiwan conflict. I think essentially what uh, the effect of China's buildup would be in a, in, a, in a conventional conflict over Taiwan would be uh, to create a situation of nuclear stalemate in which the U.S. would be uh, unwilling uh, to threaten China uh, with nuclear weapons because it would no longer be confident that it could uh, deter China. What this might mean in practice is sort of uh, build upon a concept from international relations called the stability and stability paradox, whereby you might see uh, China use higher or greater levels of conventional force if a conflict were to erupt over Taiwan. Um, because it could be confident or more confident, certainly more confident than it is today, that it would be able to deter a US uh, nuclear threats or nuclear use, and therefore kind of keep uh, the level of conflict uh, below the nuclear threshold. Of course, it could be a quite intense uh, conventional conflict, um, but it might be one in which uh, there would be a, a less of a, a chance of it escalating uh, to the nuclear level. Uh, and so there are two ways to interpret this. Uh, one interpretation is that the purpose of China's buildup has been uh, to increase uh, its ability uh, to uh, prevail in a, in a fight uh, over Taiwan because it would uh, basically, in essence, strengthen its position against the United States. And I think the other interpretation is that China is simply trying to overcome some of the factors that we've already talked about, namely a very, or at least a low level of confidence in its own deterrent in a context in which US-China ties are deteriorating and deteriorating quite rapidly and in which uh, tensions over Taiwan are playing a very prominent role in the de deterioration of uh, that relationship such that uh, conflict is more likely. Uh, and if conflict is more likely, then China would want to be in a position to uh, deter US uh, nuclear use. And so I think the way in which it will play out in Taiwan is quite um, uh, complicated in some ways. And I, of course, we don't know uh, what sort of the endpoint of China's nuclear modernization will be. I think it's important to note that you know, what has animated discussion recently, in addition to the test of the hypersonic glide vehicle, has been this uh, projection in the November uh, 2021 DOD uh, report on China's military power that China may build as many as uh, 700 nuclear warheads by 2027 and at least 1,000 by 2030. And so um, we don't know necessarily the basis for those estimates. I, I believe until we have a different view here, I believe that, that they appear to be based upon what the US assesses China can produce in terms of fissile mount material that could then be used to build or to, to expand its stockpile of nuclear warheads. China may build more than what's being estimated, also may build less, but I think the, the Chinese goal will be to be in a position whereby its, its deterrent uh, uh, 
nuclear deterrent is greatly enhanced and it will place uh, the US in a situation of stalemate, which should um, um, at least uh, have that have 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 that impact on the Taiwan uh, conflict. Whether that makes China more likely to use force against Taiwan, I think is uncertain. But I think if the way in which Taiwan sort of evolves and and conflict becomes more likely, I think China will be more confident that it can use force uh, without risking um, uh, escalation to the nuclear level. Great, thank you. So moving on to arms control. So in the readout of the virtual meeting between Presidents Joe Biden and Xi Jinping last month, U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said that the two leaders agreed to, quote, look to begin to carry forward discussion on strategic stability, end quote. So Tom, is there a clear path forward where our two countries can come to a mutual understanding somewhere between U.S. preservation of the status quo and China's pursuit of nuclear parity? I think it's certainly a positive development that the two leaders um, seem to acknowledge the importance of discussing nuclear issues and strategic stability issues. Uh, but regarding whether they can find some consensus, um, I think um, we need to understand that uh, China's nuclear expansion seems to be driven by uh, both paranoia on one hand and ambition on the other. Um, China, as Professor Fravel uh, said, uh, has long worried that uh, U.S. wanted to undermine China's nuclear deterrent and the recent uh, bilateral uh, rivalry at the political level further enhances the Chinese concern that the U.S. You know, is willing to uh, undermine China's core interests, is willing to threaten China's regime security, uh, to prevent and disrupt uh, China's peaceful rise. Um, and um, so efforts to strengthen nuclear forces uh, are partly meant to uh, force the United States to accept peaceful coexistence with China, to force the United States to accept a relationship of mutual vulnerability at the nuclear level. Um, so that, that part of the incentive uh, is basically driven, uh, you know, comes from paranoia, uh, the worry that uh, US wants to escape mutual vulnerability relationship. Uh, so there are things that US can do to uh, mitigate that uh, concern. Uh, US could more explicitly uh, commit uh, to a mutual, vulner mutual vulnerability relationship uh, and that could reduce uh, Chinese paranoia that the U.S. is doing everything to uh, threaten, undermine the survivability and effectiveness of China's second strike capability. Uh, and uh, the two sides can start a comprehensive discussion on various non-nuclear capabilities that would affect the bilateral nuclear relationship, something like the U.S.-Russian bilateral strategic stability dialogue. So they could examine the impact of a wide range of military technologies such as missile defense, conventional precision strike weapons, space-based sensors, uh, even AI and cyber technologies, uh, because this is a new challenge uh, facing uh, US and China in the Cold War, nuclear weapons were only vulnerable to nuclear attack, but today, all these non-nuclear technologies in theory could affect China's nuclear survivability. So they need, the, the two sides need to find a framework about how to address and manage 
the impact of uh, of new military technologies. Uh, if the U.S. is willing uh, to address China's concerns about missile defense and and, and other uh, military technologies, that would uh, further reassure China that they can maintain a stable uh, nuclear relationship. Um, but the part of ambition is harder to address if uh, if China is indeed intended to use nuclear weapon as a cover uh, uh, um, for China's conventional level military operation, including uh, across the Taiwan Strait. Um, and also if China is now uh, indeed intended to develop some type of escalation management capability, and that would make the US-China nuclear relationship uh, much more competitive than before. Um, so how to manage that type of nuclear competition, uh, I don't think uh, anyone has uh, any good solution yet. Great, and so following up on something that you mentioned, um, are there lessons to be learned today from the US's approach to arms control with the Soviet Union? Um, the US uh, Soviet Union arms control uh, basically took place between uh, two uh, similar or uh, roughly equal nuclear uh, partners, nuclear rivals. Um, but today the US and China still have a huge uh, capability asymmetry. Uh, even though China is uh, expanding its nuclear capability very uh, quickly, uh, the gap is still very serious. Um, so we don't know if uh, we can conduct effective um, arms control uh, cooperation uh, when their capability is so much, uh, so much a part of there is such a big gap. I don't think China's current nuclear expansion is conducted in a way that has considered uh, the issue of arms control. Uh, I don't think uh, there is uh, you know, consideration that uh, this, uh, after achieving certain level of nuclear capability, China would then uh, turn to arms control negotiation with the United States. Um, so uh, if there is no clear uh, planning on the Chinese part, about when to start arms control negotiation, that just make the bilateral engagement on this issue uh, much more uncertain. Um, and um, there, is, there are also uh, you know, technological challenges. Uh, I just mentioned how to come up with a framework that would satisfactorily address the impact of a wide range of new military technologies. And for the two sides to agree, uh, on how much each new technology would uh, affect uh, the bilateral nuclear stability. That's a huge challenge uh, and something that the Cold War experience uh, wouldn't provide much uh, advice for the US-China relationship today. But there is one, I think, uh, positive lesson we can draw from the Cold War experience, which is um, the US and, China, the US and uh, Soviet Union really managed to overcome their very deep strategic distrust um, uh, and managed to uh, start building confidence and building trust. Uh, they came up with uh, very robust and strict arms control verification regimes uh, that overcome traditional so Soviet concerns about uh, uh, military uh, secrets. And China today uh, also uh, 
share a lot of the same concerns about uh, whether U.S. would use arms control and would use verification and would use uh, inspections uh, to collect intelligence on China. And I think China can learn a lot from the successful experience of U.S. and Soviet Union in overcoming that distrust and coming up with robust arms control regimes, including strict verification and inspection uh, regulations. Um, the Soviet and American leaders uh, joint declaration that nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought uh, is also a very important example that shows that strategic level reassurance um, about you know, uh, the importance of mutual vulnerability uh, could help st stabilize the bilateral relationship. So far, the US and China haven't managed to jointly declare something to that effect. Uh, so maybe they can follow the example of uh, President Reagan and uh, General Secretary Gorbachev and also jointly declare that uh, nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. I think that type of uh, symbolic uh, statement can uh, help uh, provide uh, political level reassurance and stabilize the bilateral relationship to some extent. Is there anything you'd like to add to that, Taylor? Um, yeah, I have one, one point to add to uh, Tom's excellent uh, overview with which I agree, which is US-Soviet arms control was only really possible perhaps after a series of very scary crises between the two countries. Um, and so I think the question for the US and China is how to uh, engage in these talks, which are sorely needed without having to experience something akin to a Cuban Missile Crisis or a crisis over Berlin that really brings home in a vivid way just how dangerous uh, the, you know, the situation between the two countries uh, could be. And so I think another lesson is not to wait <laughs> um, until, until it's too late because it, you know, the technology has changed. I think the stakes are different in some of the issues between the US and China that make them perhaps more volatile or more escalatory than some of the issues over which crises occur between the US and the Soviet Union. And so this is a different kind of lesson, um, um, but I think all, all the points that, that Tom makes are also all really well taken, especially the last one about strategic reassurance. Okay, um, so with that, um, thank you so much, Taylor and Tom, for sharing your insights on an issue that has been on many of our minds lately and for speaking with us today. We also thank our viewers and hope those who have tuned in have found this interview interesting and informative and that you will join us for future National Committee programming. So thanks again, everyone, and take care. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.